0: Welcome Pilates Stratosphere to another Elephant's episode with me, Raphael, and I'm very excited about today's conversation about should you uh, adjust your, or should you uh, program your training around your menstrual cycle? Uh, because I'm here with Dr. Alyssa Olenick, who is a fellow exercise physiologist, although a couple of rungs higher up the ladder than I am. Uh, And so, yeah, before we get into it, Alyssa, welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Hello. Thank you for having me here. I'm excited.
0: Yeah, me too. So, uh, yeah, can you introduce yourself to the Pilates stratosphere, please?
1: Yeah. So, hi. I'm uh, Dr. Alyssa Olenek. I'm still used to saying that. I'm a new new PhD as of last year, so um, embracing my title now. But, uh, yeah, as he said, I have a PhD in exercise physiology. I hold a master's degree in exercise physiology, bachelor's, all that, You know, I just spent a lot of years in school studying um, exercise science, health, and a lot of my original, you know, research and training is in metabolism and human health and um, how that intersects with exercise and what we eat and how we eat. And as I got into the depths of my PhD, I started to get really interested in sex differences, menstrual cycle, birth control type effects on training, performance, metabolism, and health, um, and specifically kind of specializing in female physiology. And then right now I'm a postdoctoral fellow who's doing additional training in metabolism and menopause um, to kind of continue my research and you know scientific expertise and training, and then kind of alongside all this, I am probably a little different than the crowd listening to this. I'm an ultra runner, a weightlifter. I'm really into hybrid training. Um, a lot of my training expertise, knowledge, coaching, and experience is more of in like the strength training and like you know ultra endurance trail type training atmospheres, and so that's a little bit more where I come from the training world. So a little bit different than here, than maybe you are been listening to this today. Um, but yeah, my love of exercise transcends, you know, across not just academics, but just like my hobbies and my coaching and all of the, what I do, even showing up in the social media space. So I'm really excited to chat here today about some of my research expertise.
0: Yeah. And are you based in Colorado at the moment? Right now I am
1: in Colorado, but I've been a little bit of everywhere. Right.
0: And uh, you have your own podcast, which is uh, The Messy Middle.
1: Yes, I have a podcast called The Messy Middle Podcast, and then I have like a YouTube channel and Instagram. Um, those are both, you can find me at Fitness. That's kind of across the board. And then my training programs are The List Method, um, which is kind of where I allow people to do conditioning and lifting in the same place. Um, but yeah, my podcast is The Messy Middle Podcast. And a lot of that is starting to get cross-posted to my YouTube too. So depending on how you like to consume your content, that's where you can kind of find me across the board. And if you just go to docklessfitness.com, you'll kind of find links and resources to all of that in one place
0: yeah and the, what actually drew me to your um communication is your fundamental message that women ain't fragile um so yeah I think we've definitely got that are we yeah
1: if there's a hill I will die on it is that one <laughs> right. yeah
0: um so so uh for, you know we're here to discuss you know should you program your training around your menstrual cycle is there a benefit if you're a coach if you're an instructor trainer you know you have female clients you know should or for your own, you know, training, how important is it or is it beneficial to program your um, training around your menstrual cycle? And there, there is a little research on this, although it's somewhat conflicting. So firstly, can you uh, just, um, you know, and maybe I'm just coming from a place of profound ignorance as a man here, but uh, I don't know, maybe there are listeners who aren't familiar with the names of the phases of the menstrual cycle. So could you just map that out for us, please?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I've it's a lot, a lot of people, you know, you, they know when their period is and like, they might know what ovulation is if they've tried to get pregnant, but a lot of people don't know those intricacies. So I don't think it's a dumb question at all. And so, um, essentially the menstrual cycle is the, it starts on the day of your period. So people think that's the end of your menstrual cycle, but that's actually day one. So the day you get your period is like day zero or day one, however you want to count that, um, for your menstrual cycle and your hormones fluctuate across a month on an average of like twenty-four to thirty-two days, give or take, what's healthy and normal for every person? There's variability in this, but generally, um, this is described as like a twenty-eight days cycle. So, t- you know, give or take your personal individual been individual experience. Um, so, don't take anything to heart if I say twenty-eight days that you're like, oh, like that's not true for me. Always talk to your OB or doctor, whoever you're working with, to make sure what's normal for you is normal for you. But it's about twenty-eight days long. Um, and it starts day one or zero is your menstrual cycle. And that is part of your early follicular phase. So you have a follicular phase, which is the first half of your menstrual cycle. So that early follicular phase or the menstrual phase is kind of that first week of your menstrual cycle. It's kind of, you know, whether or not you are you know, bleeding the entire time, having a menstrual cycle experience that entire time, it's kind of about that first week of your cycle. Your hormones are pretty low. Estrogen and progesterone are both pretty low during this time. Um, It seems counterintuitive that your hormones are lower when you are in your menstrual cycle, but they are actually lower during that time. Um... So then you go into your like late follicular phase and that is essentially the phase on um, the second half of the follicular phase where you're leading up to ovulation. So you kind of have your menstrual cycle and then you have this rise in estrogen across the month um, leading up to, you know, ovulation, which a lot of people like to describe as like the main event of um, your menstrual cycle. It's really important so, for... Con- so,
0: so we're roughly a day, up day sort of 8 to 14 here, right? Is the late follicular yes, phase.
1: Yes, yes. I was going to just about to say ovulation occurs around like day 14 to 16, give or take. Um, The follicular phase is the phase that's going to be a little bit more variable in length, so shorter or longer for most people. So these are rough estimates. Like if you're going to have individual variation, it's most likely going to occur in this phase. Um, So don't just start counting to day 14, 15 and avoiding, you know, sexual intercourse and being like, this is how I don't get pregnant. Make sure you're tracking appropriately for your body and stuff like that. Um, But yeah, you have a rise in estrogen and a few other hormones that lead to the release of an egg and that's ovulation. And it's really important that, you know, we have ovulation in some, you know, with the menstrual cycle. If you're amenorrheic, you might not have that. But like this is a traditional healthy menstrual cycle, you'll have to release of the egg. And then if you're not, you know, conception doesn't occur, what you essentially have is a second half. You go into the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle. And so... I'm
0: sorry. Sorry to jump in again. I'm, I'm Amenorrheic just means not having periods, right?
1: Uh, yes. Amenorrheic is not having periods. Sorry. I meant to say anovulatory. Anovulatory is a really fancy long word for saying you do not ovulate. So basically, you can have a menstrual cycle and not have ovulation. And that can, we can talk about that later too, as an early sign of like menstrual cycle or hormonal dysfunction. Um, But that's, there's like differences in like what we're going to talk about today, even for people who, you know, are anovulatory or amenorrheic. Big words just mean like no cycle, no ovulation versus not. Um, so then we get into luteal phase and luteal phase is the, you know, man, that poor luteal phase gets the worst rap out there the whole time. Um, so your hormones really, it's not like you have this drastic shift in hormones right off the bat. That first week of your luteal phase, you kind of have like a little bit of a dip in hormones again, um, not as low as your menstrual cycle. And then you kind of have where where the estrogen is lower again, that and progesterone start rising at the same time. And you have like high hormone phase and so, during the mid luteal phase, like about day twenty-one, about a week after you ovulate, is when your hormones will be at their highest, and that's give or take about a week for everyone. Just that's a little bit more consistent. That that you know, it's about two weeks after you ovulate to your period, give or take. It's a little bit more predictable. Um, so, about a week after is when you are at your highest phase of hormones during the entire month. Um, progesterone is high and estrogen is high at the same time, and typically progesterone is higher than estrogen during that phase, which is like kind of the culprit for a lot of the things that we do see that do occur in the lineal phase that we kind of, you know, knock or, you know, talk poorly about or have symptoms due to.
0: Um uh, because it, because progesterone is catabolic.
1: It's catabolic. It's a little bit anti-estrogen ick, if you want to call it that. Um, and a few other and it impacts a few other things that occur in the body. And then you go going into your menstrual cycle that week between your high hormone phase and then your onset of your next cycle is where your hormones will start to slowly and then kind of rapidly decline back to that flat line where then you'll, you know, you'll shed your, your uterine lining and go to your menstrual cycle and kind of start all over again. And so it's more of that, that crashing of those hormones or the fall of those hormones back down or what we typically associate with PMS or, you know, premenstrual uh, symptoms and or any of that period that. Usually three to five to seven days before your menstrual cycle. That you know everyone's different experiences um, during that time. So I think a lot of people think of it only in like maybe two phases. Like oh, I got my period. Oh, nothing's happening. Oh, I have PMS again. And they kind of lump together PMS and your period and the rest of the month as whatever. Um, but really, you can break it into four or five phases if you want to do that. Like early and late follicular, ovulation, early and late. Um, luteal and you could even do early, mid and late luteal if you really want to think about it that way. And that's what makes hormones and training in your period so messy because there's fluctuations across the month. It's not these hard cut off periods where like, oh, they're high, oh, they're low. It is a kind of a, you know, everyone likes to use the word balance, but it's more of a harmony and like fluctuation within each other across the month that's occurring.
0: Right. All right. So have a, tell me if I got this right. So uh, menstruation they're basically est- estrogen and progesterone are both low. And then in the follicular phase, uh, estrogen rises, but progesterone stays low. Then uh, post-ovulation in the luteal phase, uh, progesterone and estrogen are high, but progesterone's is higher. Uh, and then and in the late follicular phase or AKA uh, PMS phase, like just pre-menstruation, both those hormones drop down again. Yes. Okay. You got and it. Thus... Thus, the uh, chaos and confusion.
1: Yes, yes, and now we are here to, you know, and if a lot of people, if like honestly, and I will preface like what well, going in this podcast, like if that that whole slew of information is new to you, like anything that applies to exercise and training in your menstrual cycle that you might learn about today. You should learn that stuff first and understanding it and tracking and what your body and experience is before you should ever worry about like the nuances or potential implications or if there's anything whatsoever, kind of what we're going to talk about today. Because really in reality, I think a lot of people when they start to hear this menstrual cycle stuff like is going around the internet, they're just so excited to be taught something about their bodies that they just don't even ask if it's correct. You know what I mean? So learn your body and your physiology first. And then start, you know, moving on to maybe more advanced things, so to speak, if they're even appropriate or necessary whatsoever.
0: Right. And I mentioned uh, catabolic a minute ago. And just to um, explain what that means, it means basically something that a process in your body that breaks down tissue. So uh, in this instance, uh, progesterone uh, is catabolic. It can sort of um, promote the breakdown of muscle tissue, other tissues in the body, which is interesting to me. And I'm just going on nothing but my understanding of Latin combining forms here, that O-N-E suffix is something that typically is associated with steroid hormones, like cortisone, um, testosterone, et cetera, which normally are anabolic. So, yeah, what am I missing there?
1: I don't know. I'd have to look into why that is. But I think I, I, I don't know necessarily – I don't know, actually, the root of that or what that is. But, yeah, progesterone itself is just it, – it tends to have, like, anti-estrogen effects on our bodies, which kind of does play into a little bit of catabolism and breakdown – Um, And there's some thought that even in that stage, some of that breakdown or, you know, catabolism or higher energy needs has to do with, you know, you just need more energy for, you know, the development of like the urine lining and all that stuff. And you're pulling nutrients away from other tissues and processes because of that. So I I think it's a little bit progesterone, but also what progesterone is doing in the body during that time to prepare essentially for, you know, an egg implantation and pregnancy to start to occur. because, you know, we also see like hypergesterone in pregnancy and there is a little bit of muscle breakdown risk with pregnancy and stuff like that, but you're also creating life. So it's not like your whole body is just like destroying everything in its path because you're also, you know, making and building tissue. You're just rerouting that energy right again to something a little bit more different than maybe like your gains during that period of time.
0: Okay. So, I mean, again, I'm just hypothesizing here. I haven't seen any science on this, but I do. I, actually, I have seen some something that's tangential to this which was uh, about, they looked at uh, this study, they at, again, I can't remember the author or anything, but they looked at PMS symptoms, and uh, one their hypothesis was basically people were um, uh, had a, in a caloric deficit, and they need more calories. And so basically, they just fed these women um, you know, high-carbohydrate diets in their PMS phase, and it did seem to reduce the PMS symptoms. Um, so, and that kind of fits with what you just, um, suggested there, which is that maybe progesterone is not directly catabolic on the muscle. Like it's not, it's not its job to break down muscle. It's his job to build the uterine lining and, you know, create those tissues, which, which has an energy demand. And if there's not sufficient energy available, well, you're going to, you know, burn the furniture, you know, to keep warm. I
1: mean, what do you break down a lot of my recommendations that I do have around like the menstrual cycle and training? I really take what I call like a nutrition forward approach. And one of my approaches that I'm a big fan of, and I think the literature points more this direction than anything else that we could say this is like, you know, potentially helpful is like increasing um, protein intake during the luteal phase, as well as I'm a big fan of increasing carbohydrate pre and or intra workout, depending on how long your training sessions are or post. So it's like going to that specific muscle recovery because there is potentially implications on insulin sensitivity um, in these phases as well. A lot of the data shows that if you're healthy, like average weight, I don't know what the most appropriate word for your audience is say I don't want to say normal weight, but just like, you know, leaner type individual, some of those fluctuations might be less dramatic than maybe if you have an elevated weight status or some sort of metabolic conditions. But in general, progesterone is slightly like reduces insulin sensitivity and stuff like that. So I'm a big fan of like timing that within those workouts during the uh, luteal phase, but also increasing protein intake. Um, especially like pre workout protein if you're not and it's good to eat higher protein across the month but if you're eating lower you know in the follicular phase increasing in the luteal phase um there is some data to even show that like exercise performance like time trial type stuff like time to fatigue um it will be lower in the luteal phase but then if you feed back carbohydrate it there's no difference um and there was even a study that came up this year this was more with the PMS week like early menstrual cycle um any decreases in like muscle power output or like muscular performance uh, compared to the luteal phase, actually, they compared it to the luteal phase. Um, with caffeine ingestion, were kind of essentially evened out. So, I do think that there is a lot of room for supplements, whether that's caffeine, protein, creatine, and like protein and creatine or not creatine. Uh, protein and caffeine don't necessarily have to be like supplements; they can just you know be normal things. And then carbohydrate can be a supplement or can be a food as well. Uh, but yeah, like really thinking about how you can fuel and your support your body. I'm not against that whatsoever, especially like everyone's needs are a little bit different. But I do have like, you know, a, anecdotally, a lot of my audience who takes my advice will say, yeah, I increased carbohydrate intake or food intake in the luteal phase, PMS phase. A lot of my symptoms I were having were going away because I think a lot of what what happens too is that because there's a slight higher energy demand in that luteal phase. So for anyone listening to here, there's, it's like 2 to 12%, which is like not a ton of calories, but it's enough that it might influence how hungry you feel, your recovery, hypoglycemic, like if you feel like your blood sugar's low, things like that. And so that's what, 50 to like 150 calories a day. So it's not a ton, like where you don't need to go, you know, massively overeat. But like when we think about energy metabolism fluctuations, like 150 calories a day can, and if it's from for protein and carbohydrate, can really make up that difference in like you feeling like hungry or feeling poor from workouts and like that you know, you might inadvertently be in a deficit during that time. And some of those symptoms that you get from that might be exacerbated by like being in an energy deficit when your body wants more energy for the things that it's doing. So um, I think there's merit to like using a food forward approach, especially if someone has high symptoms um, in these periods of time, period pun intended, or it's impacting their workouts. Like I I really do take the approach of like, okay, like let's think about how we're fueling you, then let's look at how we're training you, then let's look at like how this is impacting you, right? Because a lot of that's, those implications can be reduced with a you know a good food forward or appropriate training program type approach.
0: So feel free to sh- suck on that extra square of dark chocolate around your period. Yes. Okay. <laughs> good to know. <laughs> um, all right. So what is the basic idea? Because cause I see this a fair bit on social media and I see – a bunch of you know um, essentially kind of like female specific training, you know whether that's the, what it's called specifically, that's basically you know training for women, which implies and, and i'm I'm all in full support of a social environment where women may feel more comfortable with only women, I think that that's a hundred percent legitimate you know reason for for making a women's only training environment, uh, but I guess I am kind of skeptical about. Separating men and women, you know, purely on the basis of physiology, and saying like, oh, women need different training to men. So, yeah, uh, yes. Yeah, so, so, I, so I guess, uh, I, you know, so that's that's what I want to in the conversation around today. Is um, so, firstly, what is the basic concept? Can you outline like what do we, what do people mean when they say menstrual cycle based training?
1: Yes. So, one, the first thing I will say to, pre- to preface all this is that. I really like to encourage the thought of that. Like wh- people like to say like women are small men and they use that as a say- way as if we need like completely different approaches to everything that has to do with exercise and training. And I always like to remind people that women aren't small men, but they also aren't a different species. So that's like what I always like to remind us. Like at the end of the day, we're human beings, right? Like we're mammals. Like we we know like the basics of physiology apply what we're asking in research studies or questioning in the training or whatever it is is like okay well where are these small nuances that are specific and unique to female sex so to speak and they are there right especially when we get in like i'm not i i i think a lot of times people think when i cuz i'm going to come out here in a second and say there's not really data to back a lot of the stuff that's out there in social media and people think that's me taking like this anti-female stance and i'm like no i completely believe and agree that we need more data and research on women but People often will come back with the cop-out of like, we're not small men. There's no data on us, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, there is data on us. Just because it's incomplete doesn't mean it's there and we should pull from it. And two, the alternative is not making up hypotheses and then lying to women on how they should train and approach exercise and training, right? Like that is a lot of what's happening in the social media space is a lot of either like they're taking mechanisms of the menstrual cycle, like how hormones impact things, and they're either extrapolating hypotheses or like the questions that you would ask in research studies onto people, or they're kind of like just making things up. So it's hard for me to classify exactly what menstrual cycle training is because to me, the funniest part about this trend is that if you look at every page and every bit of advice they give and every recommendation they give on how to adjust your training across the cycle and you wrote it out, they're, like a, a lot of them are different. And if a lot of them actually contradict each other, like someone will say, do hit during this phase and someone will say, do hit during this phase. I will say, only do this type of lifting here versus, oh, someone else is saying, don't do lifting at all. And so like I I really encourage you all to get skeptical when you see these these recommendations because if you pay attention closely you're getting a lot of different of them but really what we're seeing in general is people there's like I call it like there's two types of approaches to this there's like the very like you are fragile you are weak during your menstrual cycle phase and your in your luteal phase you should be backing off you should only do yoga or like Uh, a lot. I mean, the compound, a lot of TikTok stuff is like, just do Pilates. But I think that we talked about this beforehand. There's two different types of Pilates out there. Um, But just like, take it gentle, take it easy. You, You don't do anything. It will destroy your hormones. It will disrupt. You'll become imbalanced. Like basically spending 10 to 14 days a month, kind of just walking gentle. And that's okay if that's what you choose to do as a person, but the data doesn't back that, right? And then the other half is like, okay, let's spend like the late, the, like the mid to late follicular phase and ovulation phase is like going hard, hitting it hard. And that does come from a little bit of what we can talk about that is in the literature. But a lot of the stuff that comes from like, you know, change this type of exercise, do this type of exercise this day of the week, do this one the next week, avoid this during this time. Like that isn't even what's being asked in the science at all right now. Like that's not the question. So that brings me to what I think is where, you know, the data is going and what we're going to see is what I call performance-focused menstrual cycle periodization. And instead of saying, when are we weak? When are we less? When are we this? It's going to be more of a question, when can we maximize our benefits and our potential so that we can always adapt, make progress, perform well, train well. And like, because we want women to make results in the or anyone who has a menstrual cycle to make results in the gym in the fitness. And that's the direction. Like, there's two types of camps. And then the third camp is like, there's no changes whatsoever. Ignore it. And I think people think I'm in that camp. But I'm like, I'm between like, "Eh, there's not really that much data here. But also, this is where I think it's going and how we should look at this versus like, hey, let's just say there's nothing on women. So let's just make up a four week protocol, give it to everyone, toss it out and just and I mean, a lot of this is coming from like the TikTok Pilates girls. So I don't want people here to think that I'm like calling out your specific niche and crowd because I'm sure you're all great professionals. But I'm sure that you're If you're at least in the state, that's like where you're getting inundated with this stuff. So just like, you know, I'm going to maybe challenge some of those notions here today. But when we're looking at the data in the literature and what we're asking, a lot of it is like looking at like volume manipulation across the month, like doing more volume to capitalize on estrogen and then doing less volume when progesterone is dominant. Versus, like, oh, are we changing protocols? Are we training movements? Is this harmful? Like, that's not what's in the literature whatsoever. It's a lot of performance based stuff and then, you know, response to things. And then the few studies we do have on periodization are like, well, what happens if we put more volume during the first half of the month versus the second half of the month? And that's more where the science is going. And that's coming off of that hypothesis that, yeah. Estrogen is our superpower. Estrogen is amazing. It does so much for our muscles and our metabolic health. Like that's why we have like a lot of the risk factors that we have during the decline, you know, with menopause is because we lose that estrogen and like there's a lot of benefit to having that, but also you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that the whole month is a waste when estrogen isn't, you know, the predominant hormone. So a lot of that literature is coming from this idea that, okay, like, what if we capitalize on this? Are there going to be a lot of it? There's like five studies total, and they're all coming from the strength, like, and I already talked about this before the podcast to make it clear that like, when I say strength, in this case, we're talking like traditional strength and conditioning type strength, like they're doing leg press or, you know, weight-bearing resistance training with a machine type stuff, like more formal resistance training in these studies. And what they're doing is they're front-loading the volume um, or frequency um, across the month. So they're doing either high volume in the follicular phase versus high volume in the luteal phase, or they're doing like um, high, low, and then control. So comparing it to someone who's training normal across the month or single limb type things. So they're trying to isolate the independent effects. Um, of this but the question with those or the, the literature is going and like the hypothesis in the field right now
0: S- sorry could, can i just jump in before before we go there because i really do want to go there because the research is is fascinating at the single limb and crossover studies and people serving as their own controls often and there's a bit of confounding that goes on there i think um but so the basic idea of of menstrual cycle based training is you you do more you know more either amount or intensity or both in the uh, follicular phase, so you know, from your onset of menstruation to basal ovulation, and then you do less amount or intensity or both in the luteal phase. You know, from from uh, ovulation up until menstruation. Again.
1: Yeah, and that's what it, that's the only thing in the literature right now. I want to make that like abundantly clear to anyone listening to this. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Right, and, interrupt
0: so, and so what's being promoted out there is you know when people say. You know, mental cycle based training. they what they mean is kind of a spectrum of things, everything from like go hard in the first half of the month and then do nothing in the second half of the month all the way to like no, just do the same thing right across the month. And there's basically everything in between. Is, have I summed it up correctly?
1: And I, and I really like I fall on the side of like you don't need to change your training style at all across the month right now, based literature that we have. I really do mean that, but we can adjust variables within your training to account for your individual experience. And then pull from, okay, well, this is what this data might mean and who might this apply to if there is anything here and who does not really need to matter or care about this at all kind of thing. And it sounds like it, it does come across very dismissive to women or people who've ever had a menstrual cycle because you might be like, well, this isn't my lived experience. But the beauty of it is, is at the end of the day, what I'm going to tell you at the end of this podcast is it should be personalized off your or the people you're coaching and training's experience. And like, I think just p- women especially are so desperate to have something about them that they don't like when you're like, oh, there's no blank answer because they want something to be about them. But like, remember that, like, at the end of the day, we're saying it's so much about you that it's only about you. Like, like that's the beauty of this. At the end of the day, yes.
0: All right, and so when we, you know, and to your point at this at the beginning, like that, what we're talking about here is we're investigating the research is really the nuances in between the big rocks that we know, which are progressive overload, nutrition, you know, sleep, et cetera. And so, you know, uh, there are a couple of uh, recent systematic reviews and meta analyses on the response to resistance training between men and women and does it differ. And there's one on, uh, I I couldn't find the age range, it just said, quote, adults. So I'm assuming it was kind of like 18 to 60 sort of thing. Uh, And then one was on older adults, uh, so basically postmenopausal. Um, women and older men. And they looked at, uh, you know, these people were basically doing a standardized resistance training protocol in all at all of these studies. So the women and the men were doing the same protocol, you know, the same number of sessions, the same number of reps, the same, you know, relative weight, you know, to their strength, et cetera. Uh, and what they found was basically there was mixed results. You know, in, in some of the studies, you know, women were uh, developed more, relative lower body strength compared to men but the absolute lower body strength was greater in the men in other you know in in other studies it was women developed more relative upper body strength than men, but the the effect sizes were pretty small right and basically men and women respond pretty similarly if you give them a standardized resistance training program
1: yeah and that's like pretty well known like i mean obviously we want more literature on this but like if you give a human a resistance training protocol that's well thought out, recoverable, you can control the rest of the variables of their training, they're going to get stronger. They're going to gain muscle. And when you really look at it, like especially like pound for pound or relative, you know, to size and body weight, because there are some differences where males are stronger in general and type two muscle fiber, you know, more power generation and stuff like that. But in general, like when you when you think about strength potential or how much strength can be gained, or even like muscularity can be gained, um, relative. Um, between the sexes, they're pretty similar. And there's probably some nuance and differences. And like, honestly, I think some of the differences we might see between men or women are more women have a larger gap to fill because they're starting later in life, or they don't have a sports background, or they haven't trained before. So we might even see a larger magnitude of gains, not simply because of physiological differences, but more culture, social, or...
0: Because they start from a lower level of training. yeah yeah i mean like
1: think like i was lifting at 15 in high school and so when i started to get into more serious lifting in my 20s i got so strong and like so muscular so fast but i had a base to build from where i think female trainees like they don't have that so they don't have that they have to like make up for it so they have to go slow before they go fast but i think the magnitude there though they do have more room to grow because they're starting at a, a they're you know starting at home plate instead of second base so to speak um and so but really at the same like Women can get strong and muscular relative to their own kind of size and sex, very similarly to men.
0: Right. So, all right. So the baseline here or the context here, you know, the the, the 10,000 foot view is if we just give basically every human in the world, regardless of sex, basically a standardized resistance training protocol, everyone's going to get stronger. I mean, you know, assuming we're starting in some hypothetical, you know, equal. Yeah. I
1: mean, like, assuming it's a good program, people are eating enough, but like, that's like even the question of people being like, oh, well, is it too late for me to gain muscle and get stronger or if they're like, you know, 60s, 70s? And no, like you would give your grandmother a resistance training program and she will gain muscle and get stronger. It doesn't, there's not like, a just, there's not anything that stops that from happening. So I think the question now is like, and I think there's two questions. This is a great point is that like, it's like do men, women need to train different than men or do women need to train different from their cycles? And those are, and like the cycle question is housed within the sex question. And I think a lot of the times people think that when you say, there aren't these robust, strong, powerful menstrual cycle effects. You're saying that women are identical to men. And I'm saying, no, there are specific considerations that female menstruating women across the entire lifespan trainees have. There are differences of the sexes, but sometimes those differences are accounted for through things that aren't based off the menstrual cycle. Like, it's not the story is not only about the menstrual cycle when it comes to women's sports performance and health and training and supporting them. Like, we have to move past the idea that it's only about hormones because there's so many things socially and physiologically and culturally yeah like like nutrient availability is probably more of a big thing when it comes to female trainees and the menstrual cycle training like like nutrition and how much you're eating and all like the timing and energy availability like when we really think about what matters for the the active female it's not like menstrual cycle periodization doesn't even touch how important that is compared to men right like men don't have to be as careful about that stuff that's where that's a, like a great example of where it's like that is a sex specific thing now does that mean that male athletes don't suffer from low energy availability no but they have to dig a little deeper before it starts to impact them versus us and like you know i know a lot of women are sick of being told to eat more but i'm the eat more girl like that's who i am uh but it really is a solution to a lot of the problems that we have when it comes to sports, fitness, and training. But yeah, no, I, I, I like to like break that out into those things that like saying menstrual cycle stuff isn't super strong doesn't mean there aren't sex differences and considerations and how we approach things at the end of the day.
0: I love the way you frame, framed that, that uh, essentially the, the same factors determine success or otherwise for men and women, but women are more sensitive to some of those factors.
1: Yeah, and there's things like, okay, so like this is why I always describe it is like at the end of the day, human, women are humans, right? Like it, you're, you're not going to find a study that's going to say that women don't respond to mechanical tension, which is essentially the tension you put on your muscles that stretches it and that is the largest contributor to muscle hypertrophy or muscle growth, right? You're never going to find a study that all of a sudden after all the years of strength and conditioning that says, oh, women respond to hypertrophy and muscle growth differently than men. Now, there might be slight variations in protocols or approaches that we might come, but you're not going to find out all the basics of human physiology just don't apply here whatsoever. Like, those things, if you progressively overload someone, you have adequate mechanical tension, you know, you're doing all those, those control variables, recoverable volume, you know, increasing frequency, time, duration, whatever it is, you will adapt. You know what I mean? Like, most people adapt to those things. Now, there are nuances, like females can typically train at higher percentages of their one rep max. There's a slight difference there in neuromuscular efficiency. So therefore, because women can, ha- their their one rep max might be slightly lower relative to their working capacity. So they might be able to train at like, say, a dude can do a working set at 80%. A female might be able to do it at 85%, so to speak, or 90. And that means they can basically do more reps at higher volume, um, and a part of that also comes from not only like neuromuscular differences, but also the fact that we have we have a little bit more of an endurance favoring. And now the data is mixed on this, so some people might say there's no differences. There is, but estrogen interacts really well with our type one muscle fibers and the mitochondria, like our powerhouses of the cell, that allow us to use fat and energy available for fuel more efficiently. Um, And so because of that, we can do, we're a little bit more oxidative, which just means we're better at using oxygen, which means that when it comes to like strength performance and or you know, endurance performance, we're better at using fat, but we can also, you know, we can either do more reps at a higher percent of our weight, and or we might be able to do like more volume in general. We might recover a little bit better and be able to handle more volume in our training, which is great. Like we can like handle that, which is impressive, right? Or like things like you might recover quicker during a high intensity interval training, interval workout, and need a shorter rest time than your male counterparts because you're like metabolically better at recovery because of that. Now, do you need to do some sort of training to like prime these systems? Yes, I have a hypothesis that's related to this that came out of my dissertation, but I don't have any data to prove it. But I think that a lot of the benefits of estrogen and muscle come from a training adaptation. Like that's where I like think is that's coming from. So, but in general, like that's what we mean. Like there are sex differences there, but like the difference isn't that like you are frail and weak and can't do anything. It's like, oh, you might be able to do more reps, more weight at a higher percent or recover less long, or you might be able to sustain you know, a longer ultra endurance type event on less fuel than your male counterpart, or you will deplete your carb stores and your muscles as quickly or like, you know, those types of things are where we're seeing more of these differences. Um, and then there are, you know, the differences that feel more negative, like we're less powerful, we have less upper body mass, we're less like absolutely strong. But when you think about it, though, like, it's not like it's like this super great large split there's a lot of overlap. Like I'm personally a female who's stronger than a lot of males, right? And that's not like me, to, like, oh, I am woman, here we roar. But it's just because there's so much variation in individual and training adaptations and like the overlap within that. And I, it's not like male and female, you know, humans are so distinctly, differently strong. At a baseline, yes, males are more strong, but that doesn't mean that like the weakest man is still stronger than the strongest woman. Like there is overlap within this when you look at, that, especially in, like strength sports and stuff like that. Of course, the best of the best males are still 10 to 20%, you know, faster, stronger, quicker than women. There's testosterone, there's specific adaptations that come from that. But it's not as if the women aren't also like, you know, elite women are like marginally better than the average male, right? Like that is still, like it's not like we're incapable of adapting and improving either.
0: Yeah, I think, well, I mean, I've talked about uh, Laya Bavois before on this podcast, and she's one of my uh, heroes in the powerlifting world, and she's the current uh, world uh, champion in her weight class of, class of 63 kilos, and her best world record squat is something like 203 kilos or something. It's like almost four times her body weight. And um, I I train you know, lower body pretty hard and uh, in a powerlifting style, and there's no way I could Lift anywhere like three times my body weight, and I've been doing this for more than a decade. So, you know, the elite elite women are significantly stronger than even recreationally strong men.
1: Yeah, no, it's so true. Especially now. I mean, man, I was really strong. I mean, I am strong, but some of my the females out there now, the numbers that they're moving, it's 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 impressive. It's outstanding what is capable. And like, there's a lot of guys in the gym that would kill to be able to move that kind of weight. And it does take a more elite level of performance, but it's not as if they're out there not doing it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like it's so distinctly different um, from, you know, like, you know, sex differences are like this great party in the seas. At the elite level, yes. But yeah, no, it's, it's like it's I think it's people forget about these impressive feats of female sport when we're talking about menstrual cycle, you know, training. And that's where I think, like, some of this application is actually going into play. Some, Like, I have a friend who did this at a collegiate level, but we're talking about, like, if, you know, we want to get in that conversation, we're talking about people who, like, have every other variable we can even talk about here in a second controlled for. And so it's kind of okay to say, you know what, the data is pretty premature, but there might be some benefit for that might be percent. a 1%. Yeah, this might be your 1%. Let's talk about it because the rest of the things that have large effects on training and performance are pretty much like so meticulously controlled for at that point in time that there might be more merit to it for the athlete as an individual or the team as a whole. Um, And a great example of this, though, is like this ties into like even like a lot of people use that as an excuse for menstrual cycle training physiology. They're like, well, the U.S. women's soccer team did it or like this group group did it. But if you look into what they did, All they did was have their players individually track their cycle and look at when they felt their own individual changes and variations in performance and, like, their PMS symptoms, and then they adjusted based on them individually. And I'm like, okay, cool. If you want to be just like the U.S. women's national soccer team, which I know this is a very Australia-based podcast, but U.S. has a really good women's soccer team. I think that's, like, worldwide knowledge. Um, I'm like, then that's, like, not different than the advice that I'm about to give you here today. Like, if you really want to train, like, an elite athlete, then, like... It's really not going to be this big, sexy, flashy advice either, right? And unfortunately a lot of the advice being given out right now is given to gen pop recreationally active type females who are kind of giving them the, you know, the cart before the horse or horse before the cart, or however the saying goes.
0: Yeah, cart before the horse. I think that's 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 the way I think of it. Um all right. So I think and this gets into so you know, let's let's go into the the research on menstrual cycle-based training. But I think just to 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 set this up. And um, this is something we talked about. I can't remember if it was off air or on air before, but um, I think uh, we agree that in as in the Pilates world and in the fitness world and, and the health sphere as well, of which we're both part, um, we there tends to be a disproportionate amount of focus on the tiny incremental, fine-tuned details. Like you said, the one percent things, often the zero percent things, in my view. Instead of the 50% things like, okay, are you overloading sufficiently? Is there sufficient volume? Are you sleeping? Are you getting adequate calories, protein, carbohydrate? You know, those types of basic, basic things like, you know, do not pass go, do not collect $200 in my view before you, like, are you, are you lifting at a high enough percentage of your maximum? You know, how many sets per week are you doing? How much protein are you having per day? You know, the, are you in a caloric surplus? You know, these are the you know number one, two, and three things that I would look at for any lifter of any gender, you know. And then if we, once we've got all of that sorted, right, 99% of people are going to be delighted with their results. And for the 1% of people who, you know, are like, no, I want that extra, you know, I want that 1% more. It's like, okay, well, let's start thinking about menstrual cycle-based training and, lo- and all of these other, you know, 1% things. Is that how you see it?
1: So there's, I think there's like kind of, two views on that as one, the 1%. And then there's like, okay, well, what do we do with the people who report like large symptoms? Like how do we handle that versus saying like, shut up? There's no difference. Do whatever you could normally do. And so there's two first. So this is like my blanket advice to everyone before you even think of this is like, I'll kind of go on my like traditional spiel of this, which will tie back into like what to do, but I kind of have to give you my like foundation first. And then like my, you know, approach type thing is one You need to make sure you're eating enough macronutrients and hydrating your body, managing stress, sleeping, like your bare bone basics are met because so many people are like, I'm going to menstrual cycle train. And then they're like, I'm like, are you sleeping enough? Are you highly stressed? Do you even eat enough food? Which we know traditionally like women engage in dieting practices way more frequently. And I'm not saying that like being in an energy deficit at any point in time or cutting or dieting is necessarily harmful, but you don't want to be spending large sleuths of your time in your life and these large energy deficits or restricting chronically, which a lot of, you know, females tend to do. So from there, you want to make sure like you're getting your micronutrients, like you're getting enough protein, like you're looking more at your macro breakdown, like you're getting the nutrients your body needs, fiber, you know, adequate protein intake, you're eating enough carbs to match your activity level. Then from there, it's like, okay, are you following a logistic, like a logical progressive, well-programmed training program. Because again, socially, this is not your fault, socially, culturally, women are sold a lot of like haphazard random exercise training that is a lot of high intensity and or is like a lot of variation or their strength training is sold only as like circuit training, so to speak, or like it's underloading of sorts. So you're not even doing anything that's progressive in nature. So like, are we following a good program, right? Then Once you're kind of covering your basics there, and I'm not saying that you need to be like elite athlete perfect with this, but like kind of, you know, you know, you can get to a point in your health and fitness over time with this. And this might take time. where you're like most of these big rocks, like the big rocks, like are are kind of they're covered, they're moved. Like every once in a while, I might have a poor night of sleep, or I might miss my protein intake one day, or I maybe like under eight that one day. But we're talking about like your trends across time, like not the 80-20 moderation type made up stuff. We're talking like most of the time, I'm taking care of my bodies in X, Y, and Z ways. I'm not perfect. But then you know when you go and you control for more of this like, menstrual cycle stuff, you can tell, like, okay, well, like, is it my menstrual cycle or did I sleep really? Is it my menstrual cycle or am I underfed? Like, you kind of can start to get to, like, know the differences once you start manipulating these variables. So, there from then, assume you're, like, mostly 90% of your life is, like, pretty consistent. You're taking care of yourself. You're feeling good. Then from there, I would track your cycle for three months. Like, track it like you know you can use apps some people say it's better to track manually because you might like to look at like your cervical fluid um you know you can like test ovulation like with a kit like whatever you choose to do apps hit by hand a mix of both actual testing ovulation track for three cycles and get an idea of what your normal is like i know that three months is a long time but i promise you if you weren't mr cycle training to this point in your life and you haven't you know died you'll probably be okay figure out like okay How long is my period? How many days is it on average? Does it typically show up on time? You know, you might have months where it doesn't. Like, but when do my symptoms occur? When do I feel best? Like, how do I feel on these days? This and that, blah, blah, blah. Like, take note of that. Like, start paying attention. And then from there, ask yourself, like, okay, during these phases where I feel like run down or bonky or, you know, poor, can I increase food intake? Can I increase carbohydrate intake? Can I increase? like is my recovery bad or sleep bad? Can I increase protein? Can I practice better sleep hygiene? And my general recommendations for this is to start with the cycle part of this. So like the way to approach this is like, if you're having poor performance in your menstrual cycle right now, we kind of show like caffeine can reduce some of that. You can try some caffeine if you're not too sensitive to it. Honestly, cardiovascular exercise and yoga, there's like one study has shown this, but both of those show to reduce menstrual cycle cramps So, like, and PMS symptoms. So like Maybe, you know, start with something that is just getting you moving before you do the rest of your stuff. You know what I mean? Um, You can always bump up food intake if you feel crappy. Like that, that's usually a sure shot. Like I joke in in running, in life, no matter what it is, if you're in a bad mood, you feel cranky, you feel good, but you know you're about to feel bad soon, add some carbs. Like that's just like my my approach to life. It's like add some carbs. And that's not me saying go like drink like a a slushy. Like you can eat like an apple or like a potato, like things like that. Um, so, but that luteal phase, you're more carb dominant. So like, if you feel like, cause some people, I think a lot of people think that like are in the follicular phase, in the luteal phase, get get, that get, gets a bad rap, but some women don't feel as good in that late follicular ovulatory phase. They actually report poor, poor performance and impairments there. And I think some of it has to probably do with like high estrogen makes you like recycle through carbs a little bit more. So during this phase, you know, increase carbohydrates a little bit if you, one, if you're feeling good. But two, like, it will fuel the performance if you are going to do a little bit more in this phase. Like, it will fuel this. But we tend to need, like, more carbs when we're glycogen loading during this phase or carb loading. And, like, you can increase carbs a little bit here. Um, there is some recommendation that you can, like, reduce protein, but it's, like, 8% or something. It's, like, not a lot. Like, the difference in protein intake recommendations between particular and luteal phases are, like, maybe 10 grams. So, it's not like they're, like, oh, you can be 50 grams less in this phase. But, like, if you want to cut it back a little bit because you're having a hard time getting protein, like probably a little okay. Um, I still think high protein intake is important for females and women in general for muscular health and recovery. But anyway, you know, there might be a little bit more of an inflammatory response during this time, but you can kind of handle a little bit more training volume, suggestedly, so to speak. But, you know, eat more- It's in
0: the follicular phase.
1: Yeah, in the follicular phase. But the the phase that gets a bad rap that we want to talk about performance, you don't want to shut it all down though. That's the luteal phase. And this is where, where my general recommendations come in. And, uh, with here, you might find differences or impacts on like your thermal regulation, which is just basically the way your body controls heat. So like sweating and cooling. Um, so you might find that you're like sweating more because you're having a harder time cooling yourself. So like with that, you can like use like hydrate more, use electrolyte supplements. If you're doing high sweating activities, like making sure they're balanced, just not like just salt, but salt, magnesium, pot- potassium. Again, it doesn't need to be electrolyte supplement. Potato with salt is. Going to cover a lot of those bases for you. That's like the magic food, I feel like, for so many things. Um, Increasing protein intake in this phase is great. A lot of people complain, or the hypothesis is that recovery is poorer here because of the progesterone and other things. Um, And increase your protein intake and. Doing it pre-workout is actually probably more effective than post-workout because you have amino acids already in your body. But total daily intake matters most, but you might want to time it either pre your post there to be a little bit more specific. So you have like those proteins in your body ready to rock for you Um, or they're coming shortly after your workout's done. And you can also time carbohydrates to like your carb more carb-heavy meals to pre-workout there or like if you're doing longer training sessions. Because again, I come from like a running background too. So like you're eating on your, you're during your workouts. You might want to bump up the carb intake there, and that might help with some of like the decreases in performance and recovery that we're seeing. Um, again, thermal regulation. Sorry, might-
0: can I just, can I just jump in there? Cause, um, so, so if I can you know, sum up what I think you've said, which is basically, you know, first get the big rocks right. Okay. Make sure you're doing a well structured progressive overload program that you're sleeping seven to eight hours a night that you're eating enough calories in total, enough protein, enough carbohydrates, do that for three months, track your cycle. And then at the end of, for three cycles, let's say, you know, whether it's three months exactly, um, track your cycle for three, you know, three cycles. And then at that point you will have, uh, you know, some kind of uh, insight into, you know, fluctuations in your subjective experience. through. Yeah.
1: You'll just know your baseline of how you respond.
0: Right. And, And your first suggestion there is to basically use nutrition to address those by increasing total calories and probably uh, like uh, uh, preferencing carbohydrate and maybe secondary protein during those low energy parts, like particularly the, the late luteal phase when you're in your PMS, basically.
1: Yeah. And, and, and like it's tricky because it's like, I have like a carb recommendation for each phase. It's like, you need more overall carbs in the follicular phase, but in the luteal phase, think about timing them closer and around your workouts and increasing them in those areas. But then the rest of your day, it might help you, especially with some of like, you know, your stool movement and stuff like that to have those fibrous, healthy carbs. I'm not suggesting just go eat like sugar during this phase or anything like that. Increase your protein intake, you know, Modify things like electrolytes or potassium, things like that, to help with your thermoregulation. You might need different cooling protocols, and then if you know from there, in, increase your overall calorie intake too with that a little bit, and see what feels good for you. Um, if you were someone who is like in a deficit or dieting, like maybe maintenance for a few days if you feel really hungry, things like that, and you know that's a great way to adjust some of that especially in that early to mid-luteal phase, like I really don't think, like a lot of what we've seen in the literature when it comes to the luteal phase is like, it's really kind of the last few days of it where we're seeing impacts. It's not like the whole half of your month isn't a wash or a waste and you're not getting no training adaptations or anything like that. But some people feel that the hormonal fluctuations a little bit more because everyone has different hormone profiles person to person, but also month to month. So like, you know, that's what makes this even the science tricky is like you're comparing apples to oranges sometimes even within people to people or cycle to cycle. Um, but with that being said, yeah, like that's my general recommendation. And then we can look at like training variables. And the first thing I like to start with is I don't know how common this is in like the Pilates world necessarily, but RPE stands for rating of perceived exertion. It's a scale of one to 10. It's very common in strength, endurance, exercise physiology. You've probably seen it around somewhere if you've had like a CPT, you've taken that test. Um, and I think there's a lot of l- good literature that's come around on this in the last few years. And I think for like ninety to ninety eight percent of the population, like using RPE accounts for any variations or fluctuations or changes for most of you across the month. And so like it's basically like if you're supposed to be training at an eight out of ten effort. And so an example with like resistance training, say you're doing an eight out of ten effort. And when you feel really good, you're doing 100 pounds on back squat or whatever it is. But then maybe the next week, it's RPE8 again, an 8 out of 10 effort. And you know what? You don't feel so great. And you go down to 90 pounds. That's still like stressing your body. Your body doesn't necessarily know. It just knows the stress and like what's going on with it. Um, And that is great because for most people, even if they are feeling fluctuations within their cycle, they're also having effects of sleep, kids, jobs, stress, work, nutrition changes. And like, it's one less thing for them to worry about, but it self-accounts for that in their training program. So like I had a client even yesterday message me and she said, hey, like the first few days of my period, it's just, it's so hard for me to lift the weights that I, I, I normally lift. What do you suggest? And I said, increase like caffeine intake pre-workout. I said, um, yeah, I was like, I was like, maybe try bumping up your pre-workout nutrition. And then I said, and if not, I said, use RPE. And if your weight is lower that week, then it's lower. That's okay. Don't judge yourself for it. That's fine. But that's how you learn to know when your body works. But that doesn't mean that like your body's not still benefiting from that workout that you did. And so then my next like tactic after using RPE, and like I think that people forget, even in the literature, when it shows higher or lower volume from phase to phase, RPE indirectly accounts for that. Because if you can do if you're someone who does feel like they're stronger, better, quicker, handles more in their follicular phase, not everyone feels that way. Some people feel neutral across the month. But if you are that person who feels like they can handle more, guess what? If you're doing a harder effort, maybe your, your follicular phase rpe effort is 120 pounds. You know what I mean? Guess what? You're doing more volume during that phase. You know what I mean? Like you're indirectly accounting for that. The next thing that I like to take as approach like for a training perspective is like, okay, well, maybe like you're doing all this and you're feeling great. Okay, you're using RPE. Is like, okay, where are your worst days of symptoms? And if you're tracking your cycle and you know what days they are, I, like this isn't back in literature. This is just like my professional take on what I think people should do is those weeks front and back load your hardest workouts. So if you know that your last two days of your luteal phase and your first two days of your menstrual phase are pretty rough, that's four days, right? You still, have, but like take those two weeks and like do your harder workouts kind of before, you know, if you're tracking, you'll kind of know when that's gonna hit, you know, and do like those harder efforts. So maybe you're doing your leg day or your harder, you know, Pilates day or your harder effort runs earlier in that week. And then later in that week, maybe that's your easier cardio, your lower intensity stuff. Maybe that is your Pilates, depending on what type you're doing for the people here. Like, cause that's like, you know, in the industry, it's like, it's like the Pilates girls are the ones who are spreading a lot of this. Like the, like, and I don't mean like legitimate Pilates practitioners. It's a lot of just like the Gen Z, like 20 year olds who are like, only do Pilates for half the month. And I'm like, well, good news for the Pilates crew. That might be a great suggestion, depending on the mode of Pilates that you're doing. As a way to like use that in the backload of the week where you're kind of more slowly going through things. It doesn't feel as tense. You know what I mean? Like you don't feel as fatigued if that works for you. Um, but you can still do your resistance training, your cardio if you're doing that on top of it in those later halves of the weeks. But I'm like, why not front load the week with your harder stuff and then backload that next week with your harder stuff, especially because you'll be recovering more. So even if you're doing a little bit more back to back in that you know, follicular phase, theoretically, you're handling more, so you should be fine, right? Then those buffer days, you're kind of doing your easier efforts. Maybe your rest days are programmed in there. Maybe your muscle groups that you're not as concerned with during that time that you know you're going to kind of drop load a little bit for. And And it will probably all even out in the wash over time. So I like taking that approach, especially for people who are like, I really do have high symptoms or my clients have high symptoms, because at the end of the day, we need to get do whatever we can to keep people active, right? And if if working around their menstrual cycle in that kind of way helps keep them active, then by all means, do what you need to do. You need to deload every luteal phase every week, even if it's not ideal. Who cares? If that's the only thing that gets them in the gym, keeps them lifting, keeps them active, that can be an an option too. Like maybe you drop RPEs from eight to seven that week. You know what I mean? So people just feel the relative intensity feels... Less. The next thing that you can kind of do that aligns with like the literature and the science you we were talking about before.
0: Sorry, I'm just can I just jump in for a quick summary there again?
1: Yes, I'm sorry. I know you're a summary person and I'll just talk all day.
0: <laughs> so um, you know, so there is some sorry, so the the people do have uh subjective changes in performance through the menstrual cycle, you know, through the through the whole cycle. Um there was this the, the I'm sure you've seen it, the when was it twenty twenty systematic review or twenty twenty? The McNulty
1: or the Carmichael?
0: Ah, uh, Carmichael. Yeah, so they found like no no clear I quote no clear evidence of objective performance changes across the cycle, but women did report subjective feelings of
1: and that's of pretty big. It's about fifty one or two percent of women report their menstrual cycle impacting them, where like forty seven or forty eight report no effects. And it and the data shows like it's like one out of every two studies will show sort of some sort of difference. And the one out of every two studies shows no difference, which is kind of on par with the data when it's looking at performance. And that's where the argument comes. It's like, well, performance and training aren't the same thing. So like that's where that, the literature is now going of like, OK, well, where are we getting chronic adaptations that might be beneficial versus like you can. And that's an important note is you can perform well every day of your cycle. If you have a race or an event or a meet or I, I like I don't know what, you know, whatever people do, um, you can perform well any day of your cycle, like period. even You know what I mean? Like it, it, I think that's a great mindset to give to people unless you obviously have like really high PMDD health type effect things. We're not just missing that experience. But yeah, I know you're right. The Carmichael uh, found that and not just to piggyback on that. I know you were still summarizing is there's a couple a little bit more literature coming out, too. That suggests that some of the subjective feelings of performance decreases are what are causing the performance decreases, not the actual lack of capacity.
0: Well, I want, yeah. So I want, that's actually where I wanted to to take that a, a little bit next is that because what you're suggesting there, the RPE, the rating of perceived exertion, which is like you say, just a one to 10 scale, with one being I'm lying on the couch asleep, and 10 being, you know, I literally cannot do it. You know, if a fly landed on that barbell while I was lifting it, I, I would fail the lift. Yeah. Um, so it, it, uh, it's just a one to 10 out of 10 level of effort and it's just self rated, you know, how hard was that after the lift, um, or after the, the set or whatever. Um, and, and so that rating of perceived exertion fluctuates, like if you're more tired, lifting the same amount of weight will feel harder. You know, if you're more stressed, if you're more run down, if you have lower blood sugar, etc. if you're, if you're less motivated, right. You know, we, we can decrease the perceived exertion by playing some heavy metal music while people you know, work out. So, so there's all kinds of factors that affect the perceived rate of exertion, of exertion. Um, and, you know, menstrual cycle is one of them. And there are, you know, probably 50 or 100 other, other ones that also impact that. Um, and so when, when we, instead of saying, okay, we're going to do this exercise at this set weight, right? So, whether that's like, you know, X number of springs, if you're on a reformer, or we're going to use, you know, full body weight push-ups, we're going to do 23 push-ups or, you know, whatever number, okay, we're going to use X number of pounds on the dumbbell, okay, rather than saying, you know, your program is to use X number of pounds or X number of push-ups, the program, an RPE-based program would say, your your program is to do push-ups to an 8 out of 10 or a 7 out of 10, right, so you just start doing your push-ups, and when you feel you're at an 8 out of 10, you stop, whether that's 23 or 48 or 5 or whatever number, when you get to that feeling of I'm at 8 out of 10, I stop. Right, and so that that allows you to do more push-ups on the day when you've got more energy, and fewer push-ups on the day when you've got less. And the energy might be like literal energy, might have lower blood sugar, or it might just be mental energy, right? You might be stressed, you might be underslept, you might be you know demotivated for whatever reason. And so RPE training allows you to. It takes into the great thing about RPE training is it takes into account all of the fifty, hundred, thousand, whatever factors that impact your perceived exertion, you know, including menstrual cycle etc. And basically, you just always work at your RPE of 8 or 7 or whatever, and it, it accounts for that. So you'll do 23 push-ups in your, in your follicular phase and maybe 18 push-ups in your luteal phase if you're feeling under the weather.
1: Yeah, and, it's, and it accounts for so many things in your life, which is great, but also it allows you to give you something to kind of track and assess too, if you're adjusting, you know, nutritional strategies or sleep or strategies or spacing out your workouts more during different phases and seeing if you recover better type things, like then you can kind of see, okay, like how am I trending over time? But it also counts for the fact that like some days are just crappy. You know what I mean? And like you can still get something out of your training because you know you might have a bad workout in your follicular phase. I hate to break it to you. You know what I mean? And like you might have to drop your weight and you might feel great in your luteal phase, but like. If you're a human who's stressed and busy, and I think this is where it, this is great because it gives people autonomy in their training too. And they, they can say, hey, this is how I feel today. And that's great as a coach and trainer to implement with your clients, independent of the menstrual cycle, because it allows them to be in charge of their own body. And there is some degree of truth of like, yes, some people might not know the RPE. They might not know their 10 yet. But we can get them there. We can teach them that 10 with time. Like they might, because a lot of people under, my clients do this. They underload themselves. They think that they're doing their RPA. And then I make them do a max out rep test at the end of month three of their training cycle. Like Once I kind of know they've been adapted and progressed. And they're like, oh no, I did 10 more reps at the same weight than I've been doing. So there's merit to the fact that you want to train people on how to use this appropriately. And there's merit to the fact that, yeah, some people might perceive their training impairments to be lower than they are. But if you start moving the weight or your body, you might surprise yourself on the outcome, like how fast you're moving the weight, how easy it's actually moving versus maybe how you felt when you walked into the gym on that day. And it gives you a fighting chance to like kind of let your body tell you how you feel, regardless of if it's your hormones or sleep, stress, life, your kids, your job, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Uh, yeah, and I, I was, I, uh, I, I'm with you on that. And I also, I, when you said that, you just put me in mind of a study I saw, and I can't, I can't remember the author or the name of the study. It was a couple of years ago, where basically they gave women uh, the ability to self-select their resistance in a gym environment. Um, and then they uh, objectively gave them a 1RM test. And what they found was basically almost all of them underloaded. You know, they were working at a very small percentage of their maximum.
1: And that's what worries me the most about the menstrual psych stuff is we're taking a population who already barely meets the exercise guidelines and significantly meets them lower than males, at least the guidelines that we go by here in the state. Um, so they're only like twenty percent are meeting them, and most aren't even meeting the resistance training ones. And then they're afraid to lift heavy because they're afraid of what that will do- make them bulky or hurt their get injured or like either afraid of the outcomes of it or they don't know how to do it because they're not conditioned to it. So we're taking a population who's already underloaded and under muscular and under bone density, if you want to like make up terms here. And then we're kind of telling them, hey, for 14 days out of the month, let's not lift, let's only walk, let's only do gentle load, not like light load bearing activities, like take it easy. And then like I don't think people realize how detrimental that is to people's health versus like, okay, well, what do we do need to do to get women to keep being appropriately loaded first and foremost before we start to consider these like little nuances. 100%
0: Hundred percent agreed. So let's all just get working, you know, all our muscle groups to near fatigue a couple of times a week. Uh, let's let's all eat enough calories, enough protein, enough carbohydrate. Let's try and get seven, out, seven to eight hours of sleep a night. And once we're all doing that,
1: once we're all doing it,
0: then, then we can think about the, the the fine fine details.
1: And I get it, where people like. I think sometimes that can be dismissive because you're like, "Well, what if I am one of those people? And then I'm like, well, then just go back and follow the advice that I just gave you and actually, like, apply it.
0: Okay, so let's get to that now because there was uh, the Thompson et al. 2020 systematic review, I'm sure you've read every word of it multiple times, that found, and I quote, follicular-phase-based resistance training programs appear to result in better responses than luteal-phase-based and regular training programs. So when I read that, I was like, oh. That's pretty, that's pretty interesting. And when I, when I looked at it, they actually found like a reasonably large effect size for some of these training programs where they basically had women, uh, three groups of, you know, there were a few different studies here, but there were three groups of women and they did single, like you alluded at the start, single leg training or single arm training where they did one arm, did a luteal phase based training. So they did basically more, more sessions per week. I think they did in the luteal phase, like they did three sessions per week in the luteal phase then in the, sorry, in the follicular phase, then in the luteal phase, they might have only done one session per week. Whereas the kind of control group just did like two sessions per week right through the month. So the two groups ended up doing the same number of sessions in the month, same number of reps, et cetera. And then the luteal phase group just did it reverse. They did like one set per week in the follicular phase and three sets per week in the luteal phase. And what they found was the follicular phase-based training seemed, you know, gave superior results in terms of strength. Yeah. And that seems reasonably clear, but when you look when you look deeper into those studies, it becomes much muddier. So, yeah, can you talk us through that?
1: Yeah. So, I, I really dug into these studies. So, my dissertation wasn't on resistance training per se, but it was mental cycle effects on things. And I'm a resistance training junkie. So, I really dove into these studies a few months ago and, like, teased them apart, especially because this stuff was, like, becoming so much more prevalent that I was like, okay, like, let's actually read these studies and what they say, which a lot of people don't and they take that conclusion away. And now we have five studies. This review had four papers. Now we have five. It's a pilot study though. Um, and essentially three of them are single limb studies. One is a training intervention. And then we have a pilot training intervention that's just came out. And of the single limb studies, two of those show effect. One shows no effect. And then when we look at the actual training intervention, that's where things I think are the most interesting. And it's not a bad study. And so. What you see, though, is that I think we can probably say the literature would move to a point that like follicular phase-based training versus luteal-based training itself probably would be superior. But what the data is really unclear of is if that's even any better than just training normal across the month. And when you really tease apart that data, when you look at the single limb studies, you can't say it because you're just comparing right to left. You don't know what would have happened if they just all trained normally, like three and three, three workouts every day of the month, so to speak, on each side. And there is some crossover effect between right to left side. We are doing single limb studies and technically it's the same for both one, but there is a learning effect there when it comes to strengths and or benefits of this. So like if you're ever injured on one side of your body, keep training the other side of your body. Like there you go.
0: Right. And the crossover effect is where basically if you do bicep curls on your right arm, your actually left bicep gets a bit stronger. Not as much stronger as if you did bicep curls on that side, but it, it's, it's measurably stronger compared to doing nothing.
1: Yes. And it's a little bit different also too than like the whole body training effect that you get if you're doing like, you know, whole muscle type training. And so I'm not going to say those studies are bad, but like they're a start, right? But at the end of the day, we care about what happens when we're training in general, right? And so we do have that one intervention study. Um, It was a training intervention and it was essentially the same thing where it was like, I think it was five versus one day of training, flip-flop between follicular and luteal phase. And the control was three days across the week, across the whole thing. And that study is really important to read between the lines on. And I think a lot of people misinterpret that study, especially because it's the one good true training intervention we have, is they mixed in oral contraceptive users and non-oral contraceptive users, which basically means people with the menstrual cycle or on birth control pills. And the data, when you look at them lumped together, is different than the data when you look at them separate. And that is important because that's where you get the actual story. So what we see when you look at just the menstrual cycle effects of training is there are some slight benefits from follicular to luteal phase compared to each other. But when you look at follicular phase training versus normal to control training of three days a week, the difference is really not there. There's not really a difference between the groups at all between that. And that's an important takeaway because it's like, yes, follicular phase training probably does have some benefit, right? But... Does it really have benefit than just training normally across the month? We don't, we don't know that yet. And it really technically doesn't based off the data that we have. Does that mean that there might be a small, small marginal benefit? Potentially. You know what I mean? We need more studies to say that, but it's not this like robust. Like, yes, let's do all of our workouts the first two weeks of the month and then none the second half type thing. It's like, oh, okay. Then I, I think as a researcher, my next step would be, okay, let's just increase the volume versus the frequency. Like I, And I think that's more practical. At, practically applied to the population anyway. Like, why are we doing a frequency thing? Because if you ask people to do five workouts one week, and one the next, they're not going to do that. That's Especially, I mean, athletes aren't even going to do that. But like, I think the next step step that I would take in question or even training application would be like, okay, well, what about-
0: How many sets per session? That's
1: like maybe we're doing five sets here and three sets here, or we're changing. And so the one pilot study I thought had an interesting take on it where they did this thing called undulating periodization, which is just a fancy way of saying the type of training you do changes every week across a month. So it's like a strength week, hypertrophy week, a more muscular endurance week, a deload week, and then a reset. And I, I, I think that like, if you're going to have a hypothesis of how to train across the menstrual cycle, undulating periodization is not the worst idea because you are kind of getting a little bit of everything. But the problem I have with that study is that one, okay, you have strength and hypertrophy benefits in the follicular phase, but you're trading off when you're doing strength versus hypertrophy versus endurance kind of, so to speak. So it's like, we would have to really figure out like when would be the best times to capitalize each of those. But it's like, it's a neat idea, but it's, an, it, there's five people in each study group they didn't line it up where they were testing in the same exact menstrual phase at the end. So like there's already noise there of like, okay, some women were in this phase of their period where some were in this. So that it wasn't like the same outcome. And like, I think they could have lined up their phases a little bit, but it was a pilot study. So it wasn't like it was supposed to be gospel or anything like that. Um, and it found like potentially slight benefits in like bench press and like counter movement jump in the periodized base training. But again, like we would have to really be like, okay, but is that the best way to set that up? Why that way versus the other way? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's kind of like, okay, there might be potential benefit there, but like, what if you rearrange those weeks slightly? You know what I mean? So like, that's where I'm like, okay, like I get the merit to that. And there, again, there might be some benefit to that, but I think we need to be comparing a little bit more closely apples to apples. Cause that difference could have just simply been the phase that they came out of like a strength week versus hypertrophy week versus the down week versus menstrual cycle phase. So, um, those are like the two training studies we have. So it's like right now I'm like okay, like there's the data is pointing and alluding to the idea that training more in your follicular phase is better than your luteal phase. So if you're someone who was really busy and you just want to do a ton of workouts one week of the month and then non the second or third week of the month or whatever it is, maybe that's for you. Just go go for it, try it. I don't, you know what I mean? Um, but right now we can't confidently tell people that it's better than control. But that's an important study because I think our important story because I think people miss the point that if there was more robust effects of the menstrual cycle and these training and these changes, we would see it a little bit more clearly at this point in time. Like it would be more obvious and in our face, it wouldn't be as noisy. Now that does have to do with study control and lack of menstrual cycle control. And there's a lot of issues in female research, but you would still see a little bit more of a like glaring in your face, I think by this point in time with the studies we do have. Um, if it was this like magnificent life-changing thing rather than these just another small detail to add to the rest of the picture.
0: Right. So the totality of the literature, which is pretty small, like you say, it's four and a half studies that uh really is it's a bit conflicted, you know, because a couple of them found no effect compared to control, and a couple of them found, you know, an effect compared to control. And like you say, there is, you know, a fair bit of opportunity for confounding with, you know, different stages, different menstrual cycle times for different women and et cetera. And the crossover effect, the learning effect of training one limb affects the strength of the other limb. Um so there are there are a bunch of things that kind of confound it. But really, if there were – and so a couple of them found a, a benefit of, of follicular-based training, so increasing volume in follicular phase and decreasing volume in lute- luteal phase, not, not training in the luteal phase, but just doing less volume. So the same total volume across the month, just front-loading a little bit, so you're doing a little bit more in the in the first half of your cycle and a little bit less in the second half of the cycle, uh, seems to produce a benefit in two out of the four or five studies. Um and so you would you would have to say that you know given this the small amount of literature that we have and the sort of mixed results that we've had, it seems like f- uh follicular based training certainly wouldn't hurt, and it may help, but any benefit it has over just training the same every week through the month is going to be pretty small because if like if we've done five studies and we're still arguing about whether it exists or not, you know it can't be that impressive,
1: yeah, and that's not to say that like. I don't think we should continue to do more studies. I do think that that's important, but I think that at the end of the day, if we're going to see differences, it's going to be in people who are having more of a controlled, like nutrition is controlled and life and all these things. Like humans are messy, complex beings and hormones aren't the only thing altering our implications over things. And I think the outcome is really going to be like, Hey, If you're feeling good in your follicular phase, do a few extra sets. Like that's what I think it's going to come down to. And that might be a great prescription for muscle growth and benefit in a population that is under-trained. But again, none of this matters if you're not loading and fueling appropriately. Like all of this is a wash.
0: Right. And typically, typically, you know, with new interventions, the effect size is much bigger in the initial studies. And then as we do bigger and better controlled studies, the effect size tends to get smaller and smaller and smaller as we get, you know, better designed you know, research, that's what we find in the, like, low back pain, for example. We go, oh, there's new treatment. Oh, it's, you know, 1.5 effect size. And, like, we do another five studies and the, the effect size go down to, like, 0. 0.2 or something like that. So, you know, <laughs> it all
1: Yeah, humans are messy complicated and the data is noisy. And an important note to that, too, is that, like, the data is noisy. And there's a big push in the female physiology literature right now is, like, to stop looking at group effects and let's start looking at individual people's effects and seeing if, like, you're, if you're monitoring hormones, if it's related to that. And again, at the end of the day, that comes down to the advice and the prescription of, well, this might be more of an effect for you than someone else. So control of your variables and then try it and see what happens kind of thing.
0: And that's where you get back to, okay, first make sure that you're doing a well-designed progressive overload program, that you are, you know, lifting a sufficient intensity and volume to actually stimulate, um, you know hypertrophy and, and strength gains, that you're eating adequate calories. And, you know, there's lots of literature saying that you, to maximize strength gains, you need to be in a caloric surplus. Uh, and, you know, you can be, you can increase strength in a caloric deficits way harder and it's, it's way slower. Um, and that you need to be eating adequate protein, which, uh, you know, pretty good research is like one gram of protein per pound of body weight per day is, um, you know, optimal for... Give or take. There's a
1: little experience. data suggests women can go a little bit lower than that, but I would aim for most people here at 0.8 to 0.9, at least up to one gram, gram per pound of body weight per day. Um, that's just like my little disclaimer because it is harder for women and there's some data that shows that it might be, but it doesn't hurt you, especially like if you are in an energy deficit, bump that up during those times and or your luteal phase.
0: Or uh, for older adults because uh have either- 50, we add, uh, absorption declines. So actually you might need to eat more than one gram of protein per pound of body weight per day in order to absorb one gram.
1: Yeah, protein is your best friend. It's hard to get in, but it's your best
0: friend. And then adequate carbohydrate. And carbohydrate is not evil. And uh, in fact, it is a very important fuel for uh, athletic performance. And once, you, once you're doing all that, oh, sorry.
1: I was going to say, I think a lot of athletic populations forget that you know, they think carbs are bad, but carbs are based on activity needs, right? So like a low activity person doesn't need as many carbs as me. That might be harmful for them, but that doesn't mean it's inadequate for the energy I'm expending. Like you got to start thinking of yourself as an athlete, not like a dieter. It's kind of what I have to try to shift people to think, so.
0: What a great soundbite. I love that, okay. Um, So, all right, so once we're doing all of those things, so those are the big rocks, those are the foundations, those are the fundamentals, those are the basics that, you know, really every human should be doing of every age and every sex should be you know working their all their muscles to near fatigue a couple of times a week should be eating enough calories enough protein enough carbohydrate getting seven to eight hours of sleep and if you're not doing all of those things don't worry about all of the fancy like you know I, i follow um lane norton uh who's a nutrition public figure nutritionist he talks a lot about uh, nutrient timing. You know, people say, oh, you know, when should I time my protein intake through my day to maximize my gains? And the answer is like the most important thing, like you said, this is total daily intake, right? If just get enough protein and you're 80% of the way there, right? Once you're getting enough protein in the day, like, yeah. Okay. If you time it correctly, you're going to add a little bit more benefit, but not a lot. The main benefit comes from just getting enough in, in the day. Right. And so, Right. So, so, so let's just make sure that we haven't, you know, have all those big rocks in place. And then once we do that, then there may be for some people additional benefit, you know, an extra 1% to be eked out uh, by front loading the, the volume, you know, how much training you do into the follicular phase. And that could be easily, You know, accommodated by doing an RPE based program where you basically just go, okay, two days a week, three days a week, I'm going to train right through the month. And every day when I train, I'm going to go to an eight out of 10 level of effort, right? And on the days when I've got more energy, eight out of 10 will mean I'm lifting more or I'm doing more reps or I'm doing more sets, right? And it's just going to work itself out in the wash. And you don't have to get out your spreadsheets and, you know, calculate it all months in advance. You just go, okay, I'm just going to work till I feel like I've Hit my eight out of 10, then I'm going to stop.
1: Yeah. And that accounts. And this is a lot of lifting stuff, but a lot of the conversation in this space, too, talks about like when to do high intensity, when to do harder effort type things. And the same kind of similar rules apply. I mean, like if you feel like crap, then swap your hit workout for a zone two workout and it will be okay. Or like if you feel, you know, more unstable, so to speak, and you don't want to do like coordination based stuff, then like that's okay if you want to slow down your training to what feels comfortable for you. But like, you know, I think that's where like people just start making up these random recommendations of like only oh, do this type of cardio here and this type here. And I'm like, we just don't have the data on that yet to to say that. So it's like the blanket that we can say with that is also like, you know, maybe intensity might be more recoverable in the flicular phase because it's type two muscle fiber dominant and similar to hypertrophy. But at this point in time, like if you feel like you can recover from it, maybe you need a longer rest time, maybe you need one less interval, maybe you need, you know what I mean, like to space it out. Like, Take these same approaches and apply it to the rest of your training programs too. Um, I think the reason cycle syncing has become really popular is because of the history of like female trainees over abusing intensity and act, like cardio type stuff, circuit type stuff like we talked about earlier. And like same thing applies. Like If you're small, following a smart cardiovascular training approach, just like your resistance training approach where you're, you're no, complementing easier with harder activities and you're recovering on those easier days versus pushing on those harder days you might not even realize that that stuff is becoming problematic for you in your recovery or your quote unquote hormone imbalance, right? Like we'd love to say high intensity is bad for your hormones. I'm like, well, if you're doing hit six days a week, 16 times, 60 minutes a day of high intensity stuff and not doing any lower intensity resistance training or lower intensity cardio or lower intensity passive modalities like you know, yoga or Pilates or like whatever other types of things you do that aren't just berating your body. Yeah. that And you match that with under eating. Yes. You're going to have, you're going to feel like crap. So I think like a lot of people miss that nuance of like a lot of women who have turned to cycle syncing were people who were doing that, where they were under eating, under nourishing their bodies, like kind of restricting their food intake, overusing exercise. And they just kind of lowered volume intensity to more appropriate place that they recovered. And that's why they're seeing more results or they feel better is because they're just not beating the crap out of their bodies anymore. So,
0: so it's not the cycle syncing per se. It's just the fact that they're doing less
1: they they have more energy available for their body at that point in time essentially yeah
0: yeah and so just what you mentioned before hit is high intensity interval training which is basically where you do maybe somewhere between 10 seconds and, and 60 seconds of maximum effort followed by you know a couple of minutes of easy work and repeat that as many times as you can or you want and zone 2 training is where you're above the first ventilatory threshold but below the onset of blood lactate accumulation so in other words you're breathing fairly hard but it's sustainable you can go for you know half an hour or more, um, depending on how fit you are. But basically that would be a jog. Okay. As opposed to doing burpees would be a hit like a training.
1: four to five out of 10 effort if we're talking on the RPE, there. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's meant to be. Um, but yeah, that's just like, I think an important note to like kind of wrap up on is like, cause I think a lot of people are turning to this cause they're like, well, I feel like imbalanced or dysfunctional or I have these symptoms. And I'm like, have you ever just tried not dieting and following a consistent program? And I don't mean that to be like insulting. I mean that like truly that like with the big rocks that we were talking about earlier account for a lot of that. And you can see a lot of progress, if not all the progress you would ever need to see and more by taking those approaches, regardless of if you have a menstrual cycle or not. Like things that we talk about apply to like everyone when it comes to like health and you know, taking care of progress. And I'll add the disclaimer here that because I'm a metabolic scientist, like I give all my advice with the context of like considering your metabolic health. So I'm not trying to like destroy your metabolic health either. Like I say this sincerely, it's like this will also support your metabolism, which is like, you know, what we're all worried about at the end of the day.
0: Mm. This has been awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And um, we'll put a link to your, all your details, your Uh, podcasts, et cetera, at least Instagram, YouTube in the show notes. And I highly recommend you give this a follow.
1: Thank you all so much.
0: After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist rehabilitation inside the program i'll teach you to do three things one deeply understand how the body works two confidently and expertly rehab literally any client and three get results for your clients so ultimately your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area